Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I am here today with Zev Friedis. Zev, thank you so much for being with us. Hi. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So start it off. Tell our listeners who you are and where you're from. Okay. My name is Zev Friedis. I am a broker from Boca Raton, Florida. I run a both residential and commercial uh, real estate brokerage called ZFC Real Estate. Love it. And you know, before you got into your real estate career over the last 20 years, and uh, you know, we'll get into everything that t- ensued during that time, which is very interesting. What got you into real estate in the beginning? Like, what, what was your first exposure to real estate? Right. So that's interesting because um, I got into it like most people, which is kind of by accident. I really don't think that you ever meet a child who says, when I grow up, I want to be a realtor, right? <laughs> um, pretty much everyone in this industry came from somewhere else. So some came just thinking of my, not just myself, but the agents who, who I've coached, the agents who have worked under me. Some of them have been lawyers, some have been hedge fund managers, and some have uh, been uneducated and been, uh, you know, um, blue collar or just all walks of lines. And, but nobody really sets out to be a realtor. Uh, it's just, just, I don't know why it's just the way it is. So for me, it was the same thing. Um, I, prior to getting into this business, I had a corporate job. I was a product marketing manager for a fortune 100 company and I was doing very well. I was climbing the corporate ladder. I was traveling all over the world with the company credit card and it was certainly a good experience. But, you know, as life goes on and you have a young family at home, you know, that kind of gets old and, you know, you, you want to be home. But the company I worked for wanted me not only to keep doing that, but if I were to advance an organization, they expected me to relocate to wherever the next uh, promotion was. Oh, wow. uh, and I didn't want to do that. And, and I'm not knocking the company. Uh, it, it's, again, Fortune 100 company. It was a wonderful experience. But, you know, they're always buying companies and they always need, you know, as a uh, product marketing manager. So the next step to, would be a general manager. And that would mean, you know, if they acquire a company in another state, that that would be opportunity for me. But I didn't want to go to another state. I had left a career in New York to move to Florida in the 1990s because I wanted to live in Florida. So I was not open to relocating to wherever they bought something this year. Now, prior to getting to this crossroads, I had been investing in real estate just for myself. Uh, just mm. because I was smart enough to understand the value proposition of investing in real estate. I mean, I can get into all of that. I think anyone in this industry understands why real estate is an appreciating asset. It's a, it's a hedge against inflation. And then when you add in leverage to it, you know, if, if you can buy a piece of property with 20% down and the property increases 20%, you made 100%. So that's the magic of real estate. Uh, so I had moved to Florida. And one of the main reasons I moved to Florida in the 90s was because I was in my early 20s living in New York and renting an apartment and realized I'm, it's going to take a miracle for me to be able to own my own house, let alone investment properties. You just simply couldn't rent a house in New York for you couldn't bring in enough rent money in New York to cover the mortgage. <laughs> right? So I 
had family here. I had I was familiar with the area. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go to Florida because in Florida, this is 20 plus years ago, but in Florida, I can buy a house for you know, $150,000, $200,000 at the time, right. which you couldn't do in New York. So I came here and I did. And then I bought another one and another one. And then I had my day job and I was traveling and my real estate investing kind of took a backseat because I wasn't around too much. And then when I got to this crossroads where do I want to relocate or not, I said no. So uh, I quit my job and uh, didn't really know what I was going to do. But like, you know, everyone else, I had my license. So I said, hey, you know, um, if I can sell a house this month, then uh, I can defer my job hunt for another month. And that's what I did. I sold my neighbor a house and I made basically a commission equal to one month's salary and my job. So I did that again and I did that again. And uh, what I ran into is something that most realtors run into, which is, you know, if you go to any of the big brokers or if you go to any of the big real estate education books or courses or coaches or whatever, they tell you sphere of influence, you know, print up business cards and hand it out to everybody, you know, give it to the people in the grocery, give it to your mechanic, give it to everybody, sphere of influence, friends, family. And of course, that's great. I mean, sure, sell them all a house. But the problem is you exhaust that. So all your friends and relatives are all settled into their new homes and you still need to make a living. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's, I ran into that. Um, so, uh, so I want to stop you there. Yeah. So you've transitioned now out of your W2 job and you're in Florida as a real estate professional and you also have some investment properties at this point, right? Yeah, that's great. Okay. So then moving forward then, Prior to me hitting record today, you talked about building a brokerage up to 250 agents and successfully exiting from that. Yes. Which is like the dream of so many top brokers out there that are my listeners thinking, man, I've been doing this for like 15, 20 years. I'd really love to escape the day to day and maybe even sell my brokerage. Right. Right. Like that's literally the point they're at in their career and you've done it. And so I would love to dive into that journey. Sure. So, I mean, I'll tell you, I had that same dream. It's a tough business. You know, there's burnout and, you know, the, the old joke in the business when you become the broker, right? And, uh, you know, every, everyone wants to cash out and not have to do this anymore. <laughs> and I had that dream too. I, I was doing well. I was making a lot of money and I can get into how I ran the business and why it was so profitable, but it was very profitable. Uh, so that wasn't my issue, but I honestly, looking back, not sure why, but I did have that same dream. Let me cash out and be set. I can tell you that now I regret that, and which is why I'm back in the business now. <laughs> I sold my company in 2014. I stayed on for a year to help them. That was part of the deal. Then I retired for a very short amount of time. And then I came back to the company to help them some more for a number of years. Then I, I phased out. My non-compete's been over for a number of years now. Now I'm back in it. I this is not a reflection of my deal or anything like that. Just on a personal level, if I could go back in time, I would not sell it. <laughs> Interesting. Even though it was a huge success for me. Right, right. Because you ended up circling back and needing to kind of wait out a non-compete. And then, you know, now you're, you're rebuilding again, but you would have rather just kept it that whole time, right? Right. So, I mean, I don't be careful what you wish for, you know? So I'll tell you, it was tough for me when I was retired. I really, I grew up, with nothing. I'm a self-made man, like really struggled at at first. And uh, everything I have, I've worked really hard for. Um, Everything I have also came to me in one form or another from real estate, (laughs) whether it's investment properties, commissions, or or whatever. Real estate is really, I don't know a better way to make a lot of money. So, you know, I'm not complaining. um, But but when you go from working really, really hard, um, seven days a week, 
almost 365 days a year. And now you have enough money in the bank for the rest of your life and nobody needs you and no one's relying on you and you have no purpose and you have nothing to get up for in the morning. And you just kind of, it's kind of a weird place to be. And uh, what I found interesting was not only was it unfulfilling, <laughs> I got no mercy from anybody. I tried to explain to people how not fun it was and people would be like, oh, cry me a river. I was like, pity you. Oh gosh, right. right? I retired right, no. early. and <laughs> Right, but, but the truth is, I mean, my business was everything to me. It was my purpose. I mean, there was two, 250 agents. That means there were 250 families. So let's say at a minimum, you know, 500 people or 700 people who's, livelihood came from, and not, not to say from me, like I'm, you know, patting myself on the back, but from this thing that I created. So it was very rewarding and fulfilling. And it was mm -hmm. really, uh, you know, my purpose. Um, and uh, you sell it and you get money. Uh, all of that gets reduced to just a bunch of zeros on your bank statement. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes sense. Makes sense. Especially if what you're doing is in line with your ultimate purpose and you, and Right. Maybe you don't realize it then, but to have the time to reflect and be like, oh, gosh, that was my purpose and I sold it. Right. And and then, you know, just speaking financially, I got a very good deal and it all worked out. But there's two different kinds of money. There's money coming in, right, income, and then there's money in the bank. And of course, when money's coming in, the goal is to put it in the bank and to amass money in the bank. Um, but even if you do that and you have plenty of it in the bank, when there isn't money coming in, it doesn't feel so good. It doesn't matter how deep the well is. If you're going back to the well every day, um, even if the well's deep enough to last the rest of your life, it's still not the same as when uh, the well is filling up every day. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can't relate, but they can understand the, that, right. that concept, right? When, when you're just bleeding the well dry every single day, it's a different level of feeling towards everything, self-worth, motivation. You're Correct. just like, oh my gosh, like... You right. know, I, I need to go get up and do something. <laughs> correct. Correct. It's very important to have something, to have responsibilities and purpose and you know, get up in the morning and say, okay, this is what I have to do today. And uh, to make a difference, to move the needle, whatever that is, it's important. Sure. So understood. So you regret the sale. However, I still know that a lot of my listeners are like, dude, I've been doing this too long. It's not my passion. I'm ready to freaking sell this thing and go on my yacht in the Bahamas, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, like I so I would love to just dive into a little bit more of the systems. Like how do you even build a, a valuable enough proposition to attract 250 agents to you in your market? Uh, right. I guess so that's, that's kind of the first thing is like, how does that even happen? Right. right. So, and then the next thing is, how do you build an enterprise that somebody's willing to pay you for? And I think that really it's one and the same, because if you have a value proposition that will make 250 agents come and want to work with you, then that will be why someone will pay you for that. Right. Makes sense. Right. So, so Seems let simple. me, so I'll, I'll go back to when I first got in the business uh, and I uh, sold some homes to my neighbors and friends and exhausted my sphere of influence. And still needed to make a living. And at that point, I had already tasted success, didn't want to go back to a nine to five job. Right. So I leaned on my background from before real estate, which is software and marketing. I'm a self-taught programmer and I'm a marketing guy from my time in corporate America. So I said, you know what? I need to reach the masses. So, and this was 2005, 2006. So this was, I've also, my entire career have always been a big believer in the internet, changing everything that we know about life. Now, 
as we sit here today, that's already happened. It's done. <laughs> but back then, real estate was probably the last industry that had not been transformed yet by the internet. Sure, um, sure. So it was just obvious to me, if I want to reach customers, it would be online. So I put together a website. This was before or right when Zillow was just getting started. They were probably not known to most people in the business. So I started generating leads online. Um, really, you know, simple concept. Um, but back then, it, it really wasn't being done. Um, that was the heyday. Yeah. And I started generating more leads than I can handle. So uh, all I did was um, I would capture some leads and sell them houses. So now I solved my problem. Um, I, I didn't need to rely on my own personal connections. I was able to reach new people. Um, and that was wonderful. And I was able to reach people at all different price points, even higher price points than my own personal sphere of influence at the time. Uh, so that worked well. But quickly, I had more customers than I could handle. So uh, I started building a team. And the way I did that was I would take a lead off the internet. I would cultivate them, get them in the car, go sell them a house. And then I would turn around to the listing agent and then talk to them about where I got this customer and how, if they work with me, I'll give them the next one. Um, mm -hmm. That my goal wasn't really for me to be superstar agent. My goal was to build business. And you coming from a place of credibility, when you take a, a, a when you're talking to a listing agent who I'm just thinking of real life examples from the early days, your listing agent had a multi million dollar house that's been on the market for two years, and then you come along with someone who you met three days ago, and they buy the house. <laughs> And they looked at me and they're like, who are you? Where'd you come from? Right. Uh, Especially that, that day. Right. Yeah. And you do that a couple of times uh, with the same listing agent. And, and, you know, I'm talking about you go into a farm area where, you know, there's established people and you start selling their inventory for them. And then you have their attention. Hmm. Um, that's how I started recruiting. And I would, I would, um, I would take the best leads I had uh, and I'd give them to my agents, always give the agents the better ones. After a couple of years, I stopped selling. Um, and I think that's very important to be a non-competing broker. Um, if you have, if you're doing your own deals and then you have agents, the agents are always going to be an afterthought. You're not going to have the next superstar working under you because whether it's true or not, the perception is always going to be that they're getting your leftovers. <laughs> and that, that is such an important concept to understand. I'm so glad that you brought that up because yeah all the brokers out there that are, that keep saying, I want to escape the day to day of the business. I'm 80, 90% of the production. I, I want to you know, move out of that. You're still taking the best leads from all your agents. And you're not teaching anyone to do your listings. You're only giving them buyer leads and, and you're doing all the stuff, right? That, that is, is reinforcing you staying in the business. Well, there's a lot of issues with that. First of all, if you're 80, 90% of the production, then you don't really have a business. You're really self-employed. Mm. It's not the same thing <laughs> because everyone knows that when they buy the company from you, you want to go off to the Bahamas on your yacht. So then off goes 80% of what we just bought. Yep. <laughs> so, and it's so that, that that's actually... Work. It's the inherent problem with selling a brokerage is that they remove the founder's production volume, which if it's zero, no worries. But if it's 80, right. 90%, well, now right. your valuation is not what you want it to be. <laughs> right. So I stopped uh, working directly with clients probably in 2010 or 11, uh, 2010, I think. And I sold the business in 2014. Just to like solidify what, what you said. You started in production, you proved yourself in the market, you recruited, and then you eliminated yourself from production, through yes. online lead generation, yep. and giving your team the best leads. So then you were 0% of production, Correct. technically, and Correct. then now you have something that's interesting to purchase. 
Right. Now, a big part of what they purchased was the technology. And so so that's why the deal was I stayed on for a year to do a handoff of the technology. But when you buy a technology from a founder, you understand if there's a proper handoff, then the founder can fade away. Yes. Yes. Whereas if if the if if the but the, the the rainmaker the salesman can't he goes away yeah. the sales go away you can't buy a sphere and have the same right. rapport and influence over that sphere right right so there's that but then there's so many other parts of this also you know when you buy a roster of agents and then the leader leaves you know maybe the agents all scatter and that's another concern that people have when they buy brokerage but when your company is providing your agents with fifty percent of their sales volume, they're not going anywhere, right? So my True. my value proposition back then was that my goal, if you come work with me, is that I will double your business. So I might not pay you the same split that you're getting somewhere else. I might pay you 10 or 20% less, but if it's of twice as much volume, then we're all making money. You know, the, 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 the whole idea of competing on splits is just a race to the bottom. It um, is. It's yeah. like any, any business, if you compete on price, then there's then there's always someone to willing to work for less than you. Then you're a commodity and you race to the bottom. Right. Um, are you open to sharing your split when you were generating leads and providing deals for them? Oh yeah, back then, um, back then I was generating several hundred leads a day, and you know we didn't have 250 people overnight. It grew so, but the goal was you know it ebbs and flows. But the goal was for any agent that's on on the program that you'd give them an average of a lead or two a day. You know, maybe they get five one day and on the next day, but they're building a pipeline. And and uh, we created an a, a entire uh, system to cultivate those leads. So it wasn't just like, oh, here's someone and give it a shot. And then, you know, they fall off the back. We had a whole system. We learned a lot about how what it takes to cultivate online leads, which is sometimes up to two years. So you need a system. Again, I leaned on my my experience um, in, in working for Fortune 100 company with marketing. I learned a very a very basic concept there, which is if you do advertising, your uh, target audience needs to see your ad five times before they notice it. So this is if you're running a TV ad, the same individual before he picks up the phone to order something, he saw that ad five times before he even noticed. The ad. So when you think of an ad on TV for uh, whatever, <laughs> you've seen it multiple times. The first four times, it, it just was lost on you. So yeah. when you understand that, then you understand if someone comes on your website and clicked on a property and they filled out a form and then you call them and don't get them, you might put them in your CRM. It doesn't mean they're calling you next year to buy a house. Right. But if you can stay in front of them, get them to come back to the website, let them know every time there's new listings. I mean, this stuff is more commonplace today than it was back then but i don't i still don't know how many people really understand how it all you know the importance of why why these things are done that way um like you're not sending out email alerts because you're trying to get lucky and put the right property in the inbox of the right person today i mean that happens ultimately and then they call and then you make sale but really it's about staying in front of them so that when they are ready to buy in a year from now you're someone who they think of Especially here in Florida, where we do a lot of business with people from out of state. So right. if someone's up in New York and they're Googling about places in Florida and they stumble into your website, then it doesn't mean that next year when they come down here that they're going to remember you or they don't even know like how, how they that they did or how they got into your system. But if you stay in front of them for a year or sometimes two, then you'll be the one hopefully that they call when they're ready. So you know, I can go off a lot of different tangents here. There's 
a lot of competition so, now. I do yeah. want to stop you there. Uh, you yeah. touched on a good point, and I'd love to just extrapolate a little bit more value for my listeners out of that. So you mentioned you had a website early. Mm -hmm. That's phenomenal. That's a conduit to have a lead form and mm -hmm. capture leads. Mm -hmm. But now you need to drive traffic to it. And it's either organic or paid, right? right. You either have incredible search engine optimization, right. which was easier back then than it is today. Yes. But it's either organic or you're paying per clicks on Google. Or right. now it's very common to do social media paid advertising, right? right. So, right. So back then, what were you doing for traffic? So back then it was all natural organic search engine optimization, okay. which by the way, is still the best. Still so traffic. powerful. Still yeah. the best. Yes, it's harder to do it now. It's still by far the most valuable. And I can tell you why. Um, many reasons. I mean, the very basic idea is someone goes to Google and says, homes for sale in XYZ. You're not pushing out in front of people. Hey, I have houses for sale. I have houses for sale. They're coming and saying, I'm looking for a house. They're asking a question. You're providing an answer. So they're looking. Um, if, if someone sees an ad on TV, I don't know. You got to catch them on the right time. It's a shot in the dark. You got to put that ad in front of them right on the day or week that they're thinking about buying a house. And then they have to be right in this moment while they're sitting on their couch, ready to act on it and write down your number, which is probably not going to happen. But if someone's sitting at their computer typing into Google, um, looking for homes for sale in such and such place, and they come onto your website and see homes for sale in that place, they'll, they'll they have on it. They have intent. Correct. Um, now, pay-per-click theoretically is the same, uh, but in my experience, um, there's a, a, a lot of issues with pay-per-click. I'm sure Google do, does not want people to understand this because this is how they make their money. But the pay-per-click um, ads, first of all, they're too expensive. It's a bidding system. But the problem is that all of my competition doesn't understand marketing and doesn't understand how many clicks you need onto your site before somebody actually converts. And they don't mm. understand after they convert, what percentage of those close. So then they mm. go and they bid five or $10 a click and you can't make money if you if you pay that per click. <laughs> if that's the top of the right. funnel, then what comes out the other end, it, it, it's going to be a losing proposition. So so uh, people bid too much. Um, it's too expensive. You can't make money that way. Makes sense. So then, did you want to kind of like wrap up that thought? I, I uh, just social up. media, I think, is a similar issue. You could do Facebook ads and we've done them. But it's also, it's, it's, they don't have intent. They're just scrolling and they see a picture of a fancy house. Of course, they're going to click on it. Doesn't mean that they're in the market for it or that they can afford it. Um, and now in recent years, uh, because of regulation, Facebook has changed their ad system where real estate ads are considered a special category and you're no mm -hmm. longer allowed to put filters like um, you know net worth or income or things like that, uh, which is a whole nother conversation because I'm not so sure that that violates anything uh, just to target the, but that's a whole nother conversation. It's not redlining or steering. I mean, if you do it on you know, certain things, it is, but to try to put your ad in front of a certain demographic of say, people who could afford a million dollar house. I don't know that that's illegal, but Facebook doesn't let you do that anymore because of regulation. So now it's really almost like TV advertising. You got to just pay to put it in front of millions and millions of people and hope that included in that big net is someone who's the right person. Well, I can appreciate the, the sentiment and your technological knowledge of the algorithm and how Facebook has evolved is definitely far more advanced than, than a lot of my guests. However, this is my bread and butter, my ballpark. And okay. 
there are ways around it to okay. work within the, the guidelines and to get past the housing. You don't get past it. You still have the housing special ad category on. Yeah. But there are there are ways to still, for example, get audiences of high net worth individuals or to, um, for example, have a, a type of picture of a nice house resonate with the right people through effective copywriting and longer forms on websites rather than just like name, phone, email, right? You do like a long form right. and, 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 uh, there's definitely ways and strategies. There certainly very, very are. Yeah. And I would, talking I about. would be interested to learn more about that. Um, yeah. My yeah, focus yeah. this time around, now that I'm, I'm back in the business now about six months and I'm focusing on organic search engine optimization again. Um, and it certainly has evolved a lot since the last time I did it. Primarily, um, the Google algorithm used to look at your code more and now they look more at like screen rendering so you kind of have to shift your thinking and what you're doing um which is just different but and, and it's obviously much more competitive now the first page of google is filled up with big portals um including my old company <laughs> um so that's interesting but uh I, I still believe it's worthwhile um because the intent is still better on on those um and when you get it right I'm not saying it's free because it costs a lot of money to, to be able to succeed. Yeah. Because you really need to invest. But when you get it right, you're not paying per click or per customer. Uh, and it will it, you'll reap rewards for a long time to come. May I ask, are you also remarketing to those that are signing up and visiting your website? Uh, yeah. So probably not as much as I should be uh, right now because you just have to, when you're Running a business, one thing, one thing at a time. Days you have to choose, you know, where you're going to hyper focus and move yeah. move the needle, and then then you can circle back around. And um, but yes, I do believe in that. Um, taking taking the email addresses that you've that you've collected, um, and you have information about them, you know what they're interested in, and then doing uh, that's one area where social media advertising is very cost effective, where you're only showing the ad to these people who you already know who they are. Where, for example, if you live in a neighborhood, this is just a farming idea. So I happen to be a big believer in postcard farming, but that's a whole other conversation. But uh, the current, you know, if people ask, well, how, how can you farm on the computer? How, how, how can we use the Internet to farm it? You really can't buy lists of email addresses based on geography, you know, like based on like, you know, a neighborhood that doesn't really exist. And doing email marketing unsolicited to just, you know, widen that stuff is all very problematic. And you're going to just mess up your email deliverability and you're going to have problems. So that's not really a solution. But if you say, say you're an agent and you live in a, in a planned community, like a gated community, a country club, and that should be your first farm area, obviously, because you live there, you socialize there. And in many of those um, communities, you, you can get all of your neighbor's email email addresses, uh, or you can get the, the club directory. And I know that all of these neighborhoods, clubs, whatever they are, don't want you to mass mail them. And they'll probably get really upset if you do. And I'm not saying you should. You shouldn't do that if it's against the rules. But what you can do that, first of all, no one will know. Second of all, no one will mind is you can take that list and you can put it into Facebook as a targeted audience. And all you're saying is that when this guy who I happen to know lives in this neighborhood, when he goes on social media, I'm going to show him a house for sale in his neighborhood. And that right. works very well. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I call that digital farming. Right. So, exactly. I, so I'll partner with a real estate professional and a title company and then we'll say, okay, we want to farm this area cool, you're going to do a postcard campaign. Let's then mimic that postcard online. And we'll also, we'll 
do custom audience polling and let Facebook match based on title information. Right. And may, maybe only get a 60 or 70% match, but that's still only showing it to those people in that area. So they see the postcard three, four, five times over the next couple months and- And reinforce it. And then they go on the computer seeing, and they see the same thing. Yeah, again, yeah. exactly. Two to three times a week as well on for pennies, right? Right, right. It's a good reinforcement. Um, I still believe in postcards. Mm. People do all kinds of direct mail. Postcards to me are the only thing that work. Uh, I think it's primarily because you come home at the end of the day and you go through your mailbox and you have to decide, you know, which 90% of this is garbage and which 10% do I need to actually open? And you're going to throw away the solicitations. But with a postcard, you have to see the message to decide whether you're keeping it or not. (laughs) Um, I know. It's one of the genius parts about mail is people on one hand are like, yeah, they just throw it in the can. It's like, oh, yeah, well, they do. They throw it in the trash like every single time pretty much. But it's an impression. But they they saw your face. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, And that's why I think the best postcards are the six by 11. So they're long, so they stick out of your mail in the mailbox. They don't get, because if they're real short, they could That's literally funny. get lost in the newspaper. So the long ones, but not, not the eight and a half by 11, because eight and a half by 11 gets folded. Um, yeah. So the six by 11, it stays intact and you can't miss it. <laughs> That's funny. That's a great tip as well. So I'm curious, you know, you've successfully exited a real estate brokerage. Now you're getting back into it. You had success in the W2 world, traveled the world, you know, had success in product marketing. I'm curious, what is the single most important action you take on a daily basis that has attributed most to your success? This podcast is really about entrepreneurial success habits, distilling down the success of top real estate professionals. So when I ask that question, does anything come to mind as a specific action or habit? So I don't know if this is specific enough, but I think that you have to know what your big picture goal is, but then you also have to know what tasks have to happen to reach that goal. And you have to wake up every day and say, what am I going to do today just to inch it along a little bit closer to where we need to go? Um, just um, just keep pushing along. I think that the biggest mistake, and this is in, in any business in life, and people make effort and they probably give up, you know, 80% of the way there because they're not seeing the, the results. And uh, then you did, uh, you know, you, you were on your way, but you never actually knew it because you didn't get to the goal. I think you have to just know what the goal is, wake up every day and say, what can I do today to just get me an inch closer to that? And if you do that consistently day in, day out for a year, for two years, you'll get there because it's all, it's all relative to your competition and most people will not stay the course. So if you do, uh, you will. For me, I'm in Florida. Florida is kind of a funny place. Um, it's changing. You know, it's definitely evolving. Uh, I've been here 20 plus years. Um, when I moved here, it was more of a vacation place. Um, and uh, the work ethic was more, you know, laid back. And I was from New York where I woke, woke up at four in the morning to take a bus and two trains to get to Manhattan for 7 a.m. <laughs> so um, and I, for me, building my business first time around, I was like, let me just keep my New York work ethic and I'll be so far ahead of my competition. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Coming from that that world in New York and then bringing that type of work ethic to Florida, you're already set up for success. Right. I mean, but you know, a lot of people move from there to here and then they fall into the trap of being in vacation mode. One of the things I've always struggled with my agents was dress code. I come into the office in shorts and flip-flops and no one in New York would go to work in flip-flops, but in Florida, you know, it's Florida. I don't know what they think. I'm like, if you want to be in vacation, well, you'll be on vacation. If you want to make money, you got you be on vacation. Um, and then I'd get things from them like, well, you know, my clients um, were casual today. 
And I say, I understand that your clients are not at work. You are. Your clients are down here to play golf. And in between golf and the spa, they want to go look at a house. So they call you. But that doesn't mean you're playing golf or going to the spa today. So you don't, it's true. you don't, they don't expect you to look like them. For example, if you, let's say you were getting divorced, right? And you went to see a divorce lawyer. Now you have to stop at your lawyer's office on the way back from the gym in the morning. So you come out of the gym in your sweats, looking like a mess, and you stop by your uh, lawyer's office. That's fine. But if he was sitting behind his desk in his pajamas, I don't think you'd hire him. That's right. It's like my commercial broker, a mentor, you know, one, one of the things he said, which stuck out in a training class, he, he was asked about dress code and he said, well, I mean, show up in your shorts and flip flops with, uh, you know, st- five o'clock shadow and I'm going to show up in a fitted suit, clean shaven and kill you. <laughs> right. right, exactly. You really can't overdress. Um, um, if you overdress, people will, you, you could not saying you should, but no, just take I, it to I an agree. Extreme. You could show up in a tuxedo. People might be like, why is he wearing a tuxedo? But they're not going to think that you're a bum off the street. You know, if you yep. show up, you know, in your gym clothes, they might not know that you're the agent. And that's just embarrassing. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. So I love that saying. I heard it a long time ago. You can never overdress. And so whenever you're thinking about one or two things, just go with the higher of the two yeah. as far as like dressing up because Correct. you can never overdress. Correct. Yeah. So... I'm curious where you think the industry is heading. Now that you've had a few years off, you've seen the landscape kind of shift, and now you're getting back into it. Uh, where do you think the industry is heading in the next five or 10 years? And also, you know, what are you doing to set yourself up for future success? Right. So that's part of why I got back into it. There's a big consolidation going on without you know, getting into names of particular companies, but there's big companies buying up little companies left and right. And I think that will continue. I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing, but I mean, it is what it is. It's, you know, that's the way the world goes. Um, everyone's trying to make money and every business is trying to grow. So um, one way to grow is to gobble up um, little people who have worked hard to in the trenches to build their markets. So that's happening and it will continue to happen. I think agents, um, either they get recruited to the big companies or the company they work for gets acquired by the big company and now they find themselves at the big company. Some people will fight it and look for a, a, a new boutique place to go to. Um, but then that's hard because it's an evolution. People are with a small broker they have a relationship with. So it's not so easy to just do that over again. But I believe that there is a void now in uh, small, local, strong brokers who are strong business people who can help their agents actually grow their business. I think that that's something that is going, I mean, it's, it's just a, a casualty of all this acquisition. Um, and it's part of why I'm getting back in because I think that there's a need for it. And I think that the big companies do what they do. And a lot of big producers will take the check to go there and that's fine. But for every one of those, there's someone who actually prefers it the way it was and they don't have their old home anymore. So I will offer them a solution. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, it also you know, makes sense how you're positioning yourself in order to be successful in that landscape. So I'm curious if there's any books that you read that really guided you in your career. Like, do you have one to three amazing book recommendations for my listeners? So 20 plus years ago, when I was first getting started in my career, before I was even in this business, I made it a goal to read a book a week. And uh, I actually started reading a couple books here and there. And along the way, somewhere I read in one of these books, 
that you should engage in what's called mind feed and just don't like worry so much about what book you're reading or if it's good or if it's worth your time, just read and just keep reading and keep going. And if you read a book and you get one idea from it that you can incorporate into your life, then it was worth it. If it took you 10 hours to read the book or whatever it took you, it was worth it. So I had this goal for myself, read a book a week and just whatever I could get my hands on. I mean, the topics that I read was self-help, uh, finance, real estate and technology <laughs> and biographies. And I would just consume as much as I could uh, trying to get t- uh, one actionable idea from each each one. And some I did, some I didn't. But if you read a book a week, you know, after a year, you've got if you don't have 52, you've got. 20 good ideas that can help you. Sure. So uh, I don't know, trying to think of particular books and names of books that I read. I'll tell you one author who was very influential for me early on uh, was Tony Robbins. Um, Of course. This was in the 90s. Um, People didn't really know who he was unless you were up at four in the morning watching infomercials. Was that like the personal power? and Personal power. I I listened to personal power in 1994. Those are the personal power days, yeah. So I'm a big Tony Robbins guy. I went to Unleash the Power Within in 2016, changed my life. I've done, you know, his two years of his business coaching where you have every 10 days you have a call with like a Tony Robbins certified coach. And um, I've been deep in it and like gotten access to all of his old stuff, get the edge, mastering influence and like, yeah, personal power yeah. some of the old stuff yeah. so uh, i'm i'm more of a like recent tony robbins guy but okay. that's, that's great to I'll, hear that I'll early tell you 90s you're on yeah, i'll tell you a funny story about tony so in the 90s i i, I bought personal power so I, I i was in the 90s before i moved to florida i was living in new york did not have money i was trying to, I, was, I was in my 20s i was trying to figure out how to get ahead and uh i was up middle of the night watching tv and i saw an infomercial for some audio program on how to buy real estate with no money down. Uh, I won't say the name of the program, whatever. It's, I don't know if it's around anymore. And I bought it for a few hundred dollars that I did not have at the time. And I got it and I read the books and listened to the tapes. And it wasn't really something I could put into action. It was basically try to get people to sell you the house, but you're not going to pay them till later kind of thing. Like I, I was like, uh, this is, and I felt like I spent money. I, it was irresponsible of me. I was really young and just starting out and didn't have extra money. So oh, some time passes and I'm up again in the middle of the night watching infomercials and I see this personal power and I was tempted. You know how the, these infomercials go, they suck you in, uh, especially yeah. when you're young and impressionable. And I wanted to buy it and I said, I can't do this again. But I watched it. It was like an hour long thing and I watched it. At the end of the hour, I said to myself, this guy on TV, he has already given me $250 of value. So I'm right. going to buy it. So I did. Yep. And I listened to it and it really changed my life. I listened to it then. And then uh, a few years later, I forget why I just needed some inspiration. And I said, I'm going to listen to it again. So this is now like 1996. I'm listening to it for the second time. And I remember clear as day, I was sitting there and I, and he was going through the exercise on how to do, um, how to set goals. And he says, write down the car you want. He says, but be specific. If you want a, a Mercedes, write down Mercedes S-Class black. Like, don't be, you know, be. And I remember writing this down and there, uh, someone was with me at the time who laughed at me and said, I, this is ridiculous and walked out of the room. And I remember <laughs> what I wrote down. I wrote down blue BMW 7 Series. This was in 1996. So... I listened to the program. It really helped me. I I really think it changed my life. Many years go by. I moved to Florida. I work with this company, that start my business, have a family, get divorced. All all these things happen. And uh, we're talking 20 years later. 
And all throughout this time, people would ask me, you know, what celebrity would you want to meet? Uh, and I'd say, I don't care if the president of the United States calls the office. I'm not taking the call. Just find out what he wants and give him to one of the salespeople. I don't care that he's Don't famous. care, yeah. Um, but I always said the one person I liked to meet was Tony because <laughs> I feel like he changed my life. So one day in 2013, so many, many, many years later, I am lying in bed 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday and my phone rings and it's the office and I know that the office is not open. So I know that if my phone is ringing from the office at 11 o'clock at night, it has to mean that somebody called the office, went through the directory, picked me and chose the option to transfer to my cell phone. And I know from experience that the people who do that usually are not people who are very considerate if they go on at 11 o'clock at night and picking the broker from the directory and transfer right. to the cell phone. So I usually don't pick up and I just screen the call and listen to the voicemail. So it, it pops up voicemail. I click play and instantly I knew his voice. He's like, hi, this is Tony Robbins. Um, I found you on Google and I'm moving to Florida. I want to know if you could help me buy a house. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Yeah. You instantly called him back. I did. I think he said, like, text me first so I know to pick up. And I did. And, and, and uh, we, we did sell him a house. I gave it to one of my agents. I was true to my word. So my agent got the commission. The house got its cut. That's fine. Uh, but my agent handled it. Tony asked to meet me because he would call me all the time when he was, he would go with other brokers and it's fine. You know, the, the consumer doesn't understand our business and they're just looking for a house. They're not looking for a realtor, yeah. um, you know, and he was looking at different parts of the state and he would call me and we would talk. And, and at some point he wanted to meet me. So I went out uh, first time I was like out on showings in years, but I went with my agent who was helping him and I met him. And it was, that was one of the days I'll always remember. <laughs> wow. What a cool story. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. And you did it in the blue BMW 7 Series. Oh, yeah, that was, sorry. I, yes, sorry. I, that was why I told you that. I remember clear as day going on that appointment. And I'm like, you know, 15 years ago, whatever it was at that time, I wrote this, I made this goal and, and here I am and I'm meeting him and look at the car I'm driving. So, you know what? The goal setting works. <laughs> Boom. That's an even more powerful story now. I love it. Right, right. Awesome. Well, hey, was there a question that I should have asked or anything that you'd like to expand upon from earlier? No, it's your show. You know, whatever. I, I can't believe how much time we've covered. Um, I know. 45 yeah. minutes flies yeah. by, huh? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, awesome. Well, how can listeners contact you? Uh, you can call my office at 561-235-2161 or on the web, www.zfc.com. Amazing. Zev Friedis, everyone, in Boca Raton, Florida. Definitely have to look him up if you're interested in, one, joining his team, because I think he's uh, growing again and, and yeah. recruiting, right? Okay. Yes. And then, two, if you want to refer any business to him or if you're a consumer that's interested in that area, definitely look him up, uh, check him out. He's obviously been in that market for a long time, had tremendous success in that market, and uh, really excited to see what you do with this next venture because, hey, you're, you're back. You're better than ever. So uh, awesome. uh, Thank yeah, you, Jeff. Really, really appreciate having you on. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.